that he'll say over and over again, and that is that Jesus was called to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, in chapter 5, and verse that's verse 10, verse 11, he says, of whom, speaking of both Jesus and Melchizedek, I believe, Jesus specifically, but also Melchizedek, uh, there's things that Paul wants to tell him about him too. Paul says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered. In other words, he says, there are a lot of things I want to tell you about Jesus being called a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but they're hard for me to say, seeing that you are dull of hearing. And then he talks to them about their spiritual immaturity. He talks to them in the the whole of the sixth chapter about getting back on track and how to get back on track. And apparently they have gone to the place where, um, well, let me just make a general statement rather than covering a lot of territory that we did before. There's, uh, there's only two things that make somebody will, uh, make or keep somebody a spiritual baby. And he says that's the condition that they have become. Now, the Corinthians, he wrote to them and said they're spiritual babies because they never grew. The Hebrews, the Jewish Christians, he's saying they're spiritual babies because they once knew, but then they've regressed. Which, in my opinion, is a worse situation than, than in Corinth. Having once known the truth of the word and, and digressed, is a much more serious issue, and that's why he talks to them about the seriousness of that issue in chapter 6. Now, there's only two things that uh, that would make or keep somebody a spiritual baby. One is a lack of knowledge of the Word, and another, that would be the case with the Corinthians, but that's not the case with the Jewish Christians, the Hebrews that he's writing to. The second condition or qualification or, or the second thing that would make somebody or keep them to be a spiritual baby is not accepting what the Bible says to be true. See, you can know the Bible and not accept it to be true and stay a spiritual baby. And that's why you have people that are in church all of their lives and stay spiritual babies. Now, Paul tries to remedy that situation in chapter 6, and he says that, uh, and that's their condition. They're going back and relaying the foundational things and, and uh, instead of accepting them to be true and growing from them, He says that he wants to take them on to perfection, and that's what should be the case with everybody. Everybody should grow into maturity. That word perfection in chapter 6 means maturity. Now, notice what he says in verse 3. He said, and this will we do if God permits. Now, by the time we get over to chapter 7, apparently he said everything he needs to do to try to get them back on track, and God is prompting him now to go on and talk to him about the things that were hard to be uttered that he referred to in chapter 5 and verse 11. Because he starts telling them about Melchizedek. Notice the end of chapter 6, the last verse of chapter 6. He says again, Jesus was made um, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the second time he's mentioned it in two chapters. He starts off in chapter 7 saying, For this Melchizedek, verse 1, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Now, the important thing... The, the main reason that he talks about Melchizedek, and we'll get into this in a little bit more detail. But the main reason that he talks about Melchizedek is because Melchizedek was identified as being the example of the high priest that is to come that would be a high priest forever. Keep time in, my, in mind because that's what Paul is trying to tell him. Jesus is going to be proved to be the high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. That's important. That's why he keeps saying this. Paul says this five times in three chapters. He keeps building his argument, building his position on the prophecy in in Psalm 110, verse 4, where the Lord swore, God the Father swore, that Jesus would be a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is a hugely important thing. Now, the reason that he goes on in verse uh, chapter 7, verse 7, about here men that die receive tithes, but there it's a witness that Jesus lives forever, 
because he's establishing that Jesus is the high priest forever. That's what he identifies as the number one reason why tithing is important under the new covenant, and that is because it's a witness that Jesus is alive. Now, the Bible says that disciples of Jesus, if we're disciples, we'll be witnesses everywhere. We'll use his name, we'll use the power of God to be witnesses everywhere. Your tithing is a witness that Jesus is alive. Now, I know a lot of people want to argue about whether it's Old Covenant, New Covenant, and all that kind of stuff. We talked about some of those things last week. He uses Abraham, uh, the example of Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek instead of the way the Jews paid tithes to, to the Levites, the priesthood under the law. Now, the reason he uses the Abraham example instead of the Levite example is because Abraham didn't do it by commandment. He did, did it by the, the, uh, the willingness of his heart. He determined out of the willingness of his heart without anybody ever, ever telling him to do it. And that's the example he says that we're to follow. And that's the example that he says witnesses that Jesus is alive forevermore. That's why the Bible says when Paul, not writing to the Jews who don't know, who wouldn't have the Gentiles, who wouldn't have any in, uh, instruction about tithing, nothing in their history, nothing in the law of Moses that they're familiar with, they wouldn't know anything about the law of Moses. That's why he never talks to them about tithing. He talks to them about being cheerful givers. Because it's all about the attitude of the heart. It's the attitude of cheerful giving that witnesses that Jesus is alive forever. Now, in verse 11, let's pick up in verse 11, and we'll try to cover the rest of the chapter, uh, chapter 7. He says, if therefore, now he's talking about the difference between Melchizedek being the, uh, the, the type of Jesus versus the Levites. He says, if therefore perfection, the word perfection is completion. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? First thing he says in in his uh, establishing Jesus as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek is very simply this. Why would God say through David, who wrote Psalm 110, why would God say through David that the high priest that would last forever would be after the order of Melchizedek and not the order of Aaron if the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood, Aaron was of the tribe of Levi, if the Levitical priesthood was that which brought you into a right place with God, why would there need to be another priest of another tribe of people? The question that he asks is, if if the Old Covenant, if the Levitical priesthood brought completion... Why would we need somebody after the order of Melchizedek? Now, the people that he's writing to know about the 110th Psalm. Now, folks, there are two parts to the Levitical priesthood. There are two parts, really, to the, to the law. One was the commandments, and the other, and this was the, the work of the administration of the priesthood. One was the commandments. They were there to enforce the commandments, to teach the commandments, to, to proclaim the commandments. The second was the ritual sacrifices. Those are the two works that the Levitical priesthood undertook from the time that it was established. They were the the holders of the law. They were the enforcers of the law. They were the ones that made judgments about what the people could and couldn't do based on the the original law that was given to Moses. They were the ones that, that were the police, the enforcers of the commandments. And they were also the ones that offered sacrifices unto God on behalf of the people. Those were the two major works of the Levitical priesthood. Neither one of those brought anybody in in relationship with God. The commandments were things that everybody figured out pretty quick. We can't keep them. 
We want to keep them. We intended to keep them. We tried our best to keep them, but it's impossible. Paul goes into great detail in the Ro- talking to the Romans about how the law was just a schoolmaster. It was for one and only one purpose, and that was to show until the time that the Messiah came to show that you couldn't get to God on your own works. That's the only purpose for the law. And so what was their only purpose? Their only purpose was to enforce the understanding that you couldn't get to God on your own works. And therefore, the other side of the coin is they offered sacrifices until the Messiah comes so that God would accept you even though you can't make it on your own. That's the two works of the Levitical priesthood. So Paul establishes if the Levitical priesthood got the job done, why would there need need to be another high priest coming after the order of Melchizedek? Why wouldn't the high priest forever come after the order of Aaron or the Levites? For the priesthood, verse 12, being changed. The word changed is the word transferred. For the priesthood being transferred, there is made of a necessity a change or transfer also of the law. Now he's going to talk about how the Levites change positions. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe. He's talking about Jesus. He's saying Jesus, who is spoken of as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever, didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He pertains to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. In other words, he came from the tribe of Judah. We know that through his lineage. Matthew tells us and Luke tells us they both, both through Mary and through uh, Joseph, can trace their lineage back to David, and David was of the tribe of Judah. So he says, everybody knows, it's very evident, that Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi, he was of the tribe of Judah. And there's nothing written in the law about the tribe of Judah being operate, uh, operating in any way whatsoever as priests. So then he says, for it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. That means he was born of the tribe of Judah. His natural birth was out of the tribe of Judah. Now notice the words that he uses. Notice the words that the Holy Ghost inspires him to use. We read over it because we don't come from a Jewish perspective, and a lot of times we miss some of the details. Paul is going to get into some of the... some. Uh, well, I started to say he's going to get into some detailed information, but really it's, it's minutiae for Gentiles. But he doesn't say this to anybody else. He writes it only to those people that should know and do know. And that's why he tells them in chapter 5 that I've got a lot of things to tell you, but they're hard to say because you guys are not where you ought to be spiritually. If you were where you ought to be spiritually, then I'd be able to tell you. But you're dull of hearing. In other words, you're not really interested. You know, when I... Uh, uh, you know how the Bible says in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, it said, but speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs... Uh, singing your heart to the Lord, making melody in your heart to the Lord. I had the Holy Ghost bring a hymn to me this week. First time it's ever happened. I'm not much into hymns. I grew up in a Baptist church, and we'd sing hymns all the time and stuff like that, and I never paid attention to them. Beth prides herself on knowing every word to every hymn that's ever been made. She knows this stuff. I never did. I mean, I know some choruses, but the Lord brought a hymn to me this last week. And, and it's standing on the promises of God. I, had, I remembered the chorus, and uh, there was a specific reason that he brought it to me. And so I looked up the words. I went online and looked up the words. They are phenomenal words. Phenomenal words. Now, don't get me wrong. Not all the old-time hymns are good. A lot of them are embalmed in unbelief, as Brother Hagin used to say. But this one is fantastic. I mean, it talks about, by the living word, I'll prevail. 
overcoming daily by the by the spirit uh, uh, spirit sword or something like that sword of the spirit i'm not sure what the words are exactly i had to look them up but it's fantastic and i'm thinking we sang that twice or three times a month why don't i know that because i was dull of hearing i didn't care I wasn't in church because I cared about learning about God. I was in church because that's where I was supposed to be or my friends were there or whatever, and I paid no attention to what was going on. And that is the point that Paul is making. He's, he's going to make it about the priesthood. He's going to make it about the Jews in particular, these Jewish Christians in particular. He's saying, that's why you're hard of hearing. You're not really there to grow in God. So it's tough for me to tell you these things. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples on, number, on a, number, uh, a number of occasions. He said, I have many things to share with you, but you can't bear them. Why? Because they were dull of hearing. You know as well as I do, people can sit in church week after week after week and not get one thing. That's what he's trying to overcome here. So he's going to get into some real detailed stuff. Verse 14 again, for it is evident that our Lord sprang, was born out of Judah, out of which tribe, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning, concerning priesthood. And yet it is far more evident. For after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. In other words, he's saying there's nothing in the Bible that says a priest is going to come out of Judah. But there's no question that Jesus, that the Bible says that there would be another priest that comes after Melchizedek. Well, where did Melchizedek come from? What tribe was Melchizedek from? He was a contemporary of Abraham. He wasn't of Abraham's seed. Where did he come from? The Bible says in chapter 7, earlier in chapter 7, he said it was without father and mother. That's a poor translation. It doesn't mean that he didn't have a father and mother because he was a man. He had to have one. It means we don't know where he came from. We don't have a reported record of any type of who his father and mother was. We don't know where he came from. In other words, he came outside what you would expect to be the normal circles for somebody to be a priest. And that's part of why Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. He didn't come from the regular priest line. Verse 16, speaking of Jesus, it says, who is made. Get that. He was born out of the tribe of Judah, but he's made. Not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. He's made a high priest, not because the Old Testament said so, said that he uh, was going to come from the right place or fulfill the right things. He wasn't a high priest by birth, but he was made one as a result of everlasting life. For he, God, testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. How many times is Paul going to say this? He keeps saying it over and over and over again. He knows they can't argue with it. There may be a lot of things they might want to argue about Jesus, but he knows they can't argue with Psalm 110. Because Psalm 110 has a lot to do, not just verse 4 where this is spoken of, but uh, but uh, the whole psalm really has a lot to do with end times that they were hanging on to relative to the Messiah. For there is verily a disannulling, verse 18, there is verily a disannulling that... Uh, of the commandment. The word disannulling means a cancellation. There is verily a cancellation of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. He's going to get right down to the nitty gritty now. He says very specifically, he says, the old covenant, the law of Moses, the Torah was canceled because it was weak and because it's unprofitable. 
Now, why was it weak and why was it unprofitable? It was weak because it couldn't produce life. Remember, that was the promise that God had made through the prophets. In Ezekiel 36 and Isaiah 45, he made the same promise. He said, I will live in them. My spirit will come in them. I'll take the stony heart out of them. They will be my people and I will be their God. In other words, his promise was, I will live in you. I will bring life to you. The old covenant couldn't do that. If it could do that, why do they keep having to offer sacrifices? Keeping the commandments were impossible. So that couldn't bring them to life. So that's where it was weak. And how was it unprofitable? It was unprofitable because not only did it not produce life, it couldn't make somebody spiritual. Now, folks, stop and think about this for a minute. What need would we have for laws? I'm talking about natural laws. Don't steal, don't kill, don't all do all the other kind of stuff. Not man's laws. What need would we have for man's laws if everybody was saved and growing in the knowledge of the word and, and living according to the Bible? Do you not kill because the, because the, uh, the law says that you can't do it? We don't even think about it, do we? Well, okay, maybe we think about it, but we don't carry it out, do we? We're not lawbreakers because of a change that's happened on the inside of us. In other words, life brought spirituality, or we might call it morality. See, countries are based on morality, folks, either on a high level or a low level. Laws have to have morality attached to them. It's a real popular thing to say, well, you can't legislate morality. Without morality, you can't have a law. It's impossible. And the fact is, we have to keep making more and more laws because our level of morality keeps going down further and further and further. So what do they do? They keep making more laws to get the people that would normally do these things anyway to let them know you can't do these things. Well, the adding of laws don't matter to us if we're walking according to God's law. Because the life of God has brought a morality or a spirituality to our lives that keep us on track. Right? The Bible talks about that. He says the law is not, a, is not a, a threat to somebody that's doing the right thing, but only to the lawbreakers. That's what Paul is talking about here. So he says there's a canceling out of the commandment going before, the one that went before. In other words, the law of Moses. That was canceled out because it was weak, it couldn't produce life, and it was unprofitable, it couldn't make somebody spiritual. For the law made nothing perfect. This is the same word in verse 11, which means complete. The law made nothing complete. Here's his point. He's saying there was nothing about the Levitical priesthood, there was nothing about the law of Moses that ever brought anybody into any kind of completion. It didn't make them whole. You can make all the command, uh, keep all the commandments you could. You could make all the sacrifices in the world, and none of it made anybody complete. The reason it didn't make anybody complete was evidenced by the fact that you had to do it over and over and over again every year. It's impossible to do otherwise. For the law made nothing perfect or complete, but the bringing in of a better hope did. But there was something that made us complete. What was that? That's talking about Jesus. And what was the end result? By the which we draw nigh unto God. And as much as he was not without an oath, he was made priest. For these priests were made without an oath. In other words, he's saying the Levitical priesthood had nothing to do with making an oath or a promise unto God. If you were born of the tribe of Levi from the time that you started crying in your crib, you were destined to be a priest. 
You didn't have a choice. That's your job. You're born into the right group of people, and so that's it. There was no oath involved, but there was an oath that made Jesus a high priest. And that's what he's saying. He's saying Jesus wasn't a high priest by birth. Jesus was a high priest by the oath of God. Now, I'm going to stop here for just a minute and um, uh, and remind you of a couple of things. Matter of fact, I'm going to turn to a couple of scriptures or, or refer to a couple of things. I may not turn to all of them, but I want to refer to a few things. Back to verse um, 14, where it says, It's evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. In other words, it's saying he was born out of Judah. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, in Genesis chapter 49, it tells us about how that Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, is uh, about to die, and so he's prophesying over all of his children. He's got 12 children. He's prophesying over all of his 12 children. One of the things that he says about Judah is that there would come a lawgiver from Judah's feet, and his rule would be forever. Now, in addition to that, in Isaiah chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 11, verse 1, it says that there would come a, a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Now, what that's talking about, the stem of Jesse is David. So it's saying there would be a growth or someone would come from David and there would be a branch that would grow out of his roots. Well, what does that mean? Well, the root of David was the tribe that he came from, which was Judah. It's telling us that the king would be from the tribe of Judah. Now, that's the significance of of Jesus' lineage because Jesus could only legitimately claim to be the king of the Jews even here on the earth if he was of the tribe of Judah. But that didn't have anything to do with him being high priest. There's there's another verse of Scripture in uh, Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah chapter 16, somewhere around there in verse 1. It says, uh, Isaiah speaking, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You familiar with that Scripture? Ever heard, heard that? Well, there's a real connection between King Uzziah dying and Isaiah having the revelations that he did that spoke a lot about the end times. Not only the things regarding Israel, but also things regarding the church age and things that are yet to come. Now, what was the significance of that? Uzziah died because he was the king and tried to be the priest too. He tried to offer sacrifices, tried to, well, not sacrifices, but incense. He went into the temple and offered incense as the high priest was wont to do. That, that was his job. And as a result, Isaiah died. I mean, not Isaiah, Uzziah died. And there was a great earthquake, huge earthquake. Josephus, in his uh, uh, book on antiquities, talks about the giant earthquake. As a matter of fact, he said, uh, Josephus said that all the earthquakes from that point forward had been measured against the earthquake that came as a result of Uzziah's stepping into the high priest's office wrongly. It says there was a crack in the temple. Now, here where it says Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, that makes him king. But what about priest? Turn back with me to Psalm 110. I want you to see some things that this says. Here's the oath that Paul speaks so much about. Now, he said this. He's quoted the last part of this verse four times so far. He'll do it one more time in these last two chapters. But let me start in verse 1 of Psalm 110. Here's the psalm that he's building his case on. And they know this. This is part of their history. This is a very well-known scripture. Everybody's into David's prophecies. Everybody knows what they were. This is what David said by the Holy Ghost. He said, the Lord said unto my Lord. Jesus even used this as an example of, of who he was. He talked to the Pharisees about this. 
He said, you say that Jesus, that the Messiah is God's son. How is it then that, that David said, the Lord said to my Lord? How's all that work? Well, the Pharisees looked at each other and scratched their heads and said, well, I don't know. Jesus used this verse of Scripture as a means to confuse them. All those that think they know so much. God will do that from time to time. Just to show you really don't know what you think you do. So it says, the Lord, speaking of God the Father, said unto my Lord Jesus, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Now notice that phrase, the rod of thy strength. The word rod is the word scepter. In other words, it's an element of rule. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength, the rule, literally that which represents your rule, out of Zion. Notice it does not say Israel. It does not say Jerusalem. This is talking about the new covenant day. This is talking about the day, the church age, the day that we live in. It says, the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Folks, I want you to notice God's plan is for, during the church age, Jesus to rule here on the earth through Zion. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. But his rod, or the scepter of his rule, is given to Zion, the church, which is his name. We rule through the name of Jesus in the midst of our enemies. Now, until when? Until God makes all of his enemies his footstool. There's coming a time where Jesus will establish a rule here on the earth. But so far, we're living in the day where Satan is still the God of this world, but we're still expected to rule with his rod, which is the name of Jesus. We're expected to rule in his stead as his agents here on the earth. That's how his rule, his kingdom is set up. The people, thy people, shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauty of holiness, This is a real, real bad translation. From the womb of thy morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Well, what does that mean? Uh, Beats me. Literally, it says, from the Hebrew, from the womb of thy morning, your young ones will come forth as the dew. Now, the womb of the morning is talking about the day of the resurrection. It's talking about the day Jesus was raised from the dead. And it's talking about the church age beginning. It's talking about the operation during the church age. It's talking about specifically when Jesus was raised from the dead, then thy young ones would come forth as the do. In other words, it would bring life to many other people. It would bring resurrection. It would bring salvation to multiplied multitudes of people. That's what that verse means. Then it says, the Lord has sworn, here's the oath, and will not repent. Here's what God said, and it'll never change. This is the verse that Paul keeps building his argument on. And they know it's there, and there's no way they can deny it. There's no way they'll be able to deny that Jesus fulfills it by the time he's done with his argument. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou, the only two people that are being spoken of here is the Lord said to my Lord. So here's God talking to Jesus. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings on the day of, in the day of his wrath. Well, that's talking about when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom here on the earth. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill in the places with the dead. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. Talking about the battle of Armageddon. He shall wound the heads over many countries or great countries. 
He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. In other words, lift up the head means he shall appear in victory. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Paul is establishing very clearly Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. We know that. That's not to be argued with. That's a matter of historical fact. That makes him king. But what makes him priest? What makes him priest is the oath that God swore. That's not how the Levitical priest became priest or even the high priest became the high priest. High priests uh, or people entered into the priesthood at age 20 and they served until they were at age 50. Now, depending on who was in place and that kind of stuff, it, it you had a, a continuous rotating. Sometimes it was just a very short period of time, sometimes for a year, sometimes for less than that, that somebody would stand in the office of the high priest. Because you might come in at 20, but there might be people that were way ahead of you so that by the time you got 49, you were the next one up and you would only serve from age 49 to age 50 and then you were gone. So the high priesthood was continuously changing. It was not a matter of somebody would start in at age 25 and be high priest for, you know, for the next 25 years. That may have been the way that it started off, but as the, as the tribes grew and people multiplied, these things are rotating in and out. And that's the point he's making. You know, you Jewish Christians, you know how the high priesthood transfers from hand to hand. How it transfers from one to the other. That's not the way it is with Jesus. Jesus is high priest through an oath. He's king by birth. What does that tell us? Who do we know of that was both king and high priest? Melchizedek. Notice verse 1 again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. That's why Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. He's after the order of Melchizedek because he stood in a place that no other Jewish leader or ruler or priest had ever stood in. There was no high priest that was king to. There was no king that was high priest to. Nobody stood in both offices. But Melchizedek was the one that the Messiah, the high priest that God swore would be the eternal high priest, he was the one that he was going to follow, both king and priest. That's why Paul goes into such detail trying to make the argument about what cancels out and what transfers and what didn't work and, and what now works and that kind of stuff. He's dealing with things. Now, to Gentiles, it doesn't make any sense. Why would Paul tell the Gentiles? Why would he tell the Corinthians? Dear Lord, they're, they're into so many different things. They, they are so steeped in the world. What would they care about the priesthood? But he talks to the Jews or feels like he should be able to talk to the Jews because they know this, they've lived this, they've experienced this. This is part of their culture. So back to verse 21. For these priests were made without an oath. He's talking about the Levites were priests because they were born priests or born into the priesthood. But this one, this Jesus, was made a high priest by an oath from God that said unto him, or the word that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much, being both king and priest, was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Why is it, why is it a better testament? Because the law made nothing or nobody complete. But that which came later did. That's their whole problem. They don't accept the fact that they've been made complete. And that's why in chapter 6, he talks to them about, why do you keep laying again the foundations of the principle doctrines? Why do you keep trying to repent from dead works, repent from sins, and repent from, from all the things that you did before you found Jesus, and, and going back and thinking you're not saved and all that kind of thing? This makes you complete. 
And Jesus is the surety because he's priest and king. He's the surety, or that's the word pledge. We would use the word collateral in our modern-day language. If you go to the bank and you want a loan, they want to know what you've got for collateral. Maybe you put your house up for collateral. Your house is the pledge that you will pay back the loan. Jesus is the pledge that you've got a better testament, a better covenant established on better promises you're going to find out in chapter 8. Why? Because Jesus is both king and priest. By so much was Jesus made a surety or a pledge of a better testament. The word testament is the word covenant. And they, the Levites, truly were many priests. There's a lot of them because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. You needed a lot of them because they were men, they were human, they died. But this man, Jesus, because he continueth forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. That means his priesthood never transfers. It doesn't pass from him to somebody else. He's it forever. Time is the issue. That's the point Paul keeps trying to make. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. That's why verse 25 is important. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The, the word uttermost means absolute completion. Now, the implication is that it's because of time. He is able to save them, literally deliver them. What's he delivered them from? Well, first of all, he delivered us from spiritual death when we made him the Lord of our lives. But he's also delivering us from the law of Moses. He's delivered us from all of the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices. He's delivered us from all the Old Testament commandments. Those are the two elements of the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. We're not subject anymore to the commandments. We're not subject any commandments of Moses. And we're not subject anymore to the, to the ritual sacrifices. Folks, it's unscriptural to bring heifers and calves and goats and all that stuff to, to church now. Thank God for that. Wouldn't that be a mess? Thank God we don't have to do any of that kind of stuff. Now, here's the problem that the Jews have today. The Jews... Can, ex- can tell you how much they keep the law. They can tell you how they keep all the commandments. That's one half of it. That's fine. That They may puff their, their, their chest out and say, that's really great. But what about the other side? What about offering the, the sacrifices? I, uh, I had a, a, made a real good friend with a, a, a Jewish fellow that was uh, a rabbi. And he lived in New York. He kind of split his time between New York and, and Jerusalem. And now he's gone home to be with the Lord. And, and But for, for about, I don't know, three and a half, maybe four years, I talked to him once, maybe twice a week. We'd email each other, and, and uh, it was kind of a chance thing that we got to know each other, and, and we just kind of hit it off. And, uh, and there, was, there was only one time that I really felt that I needed to nail the guy down as far as the Bible was concerned. He would, we'd kind of pick at each other. He'd make fun of me for being a Christian, and I'd make fun of him for not being a Christian. And, uh, and it, w- it was always lighthearted. I'd always throw something out there, never tried to press, never tried to push. I-, I had such great respect for this guy. But one day, he said something that just really got me wrong. And so we, we got into it, and the argument got a little bit heated. And I said, well, Doc, your problem is you don't have a covenant with God. And, and that, that just fried him. He said, how dare you? We are the ones with the covenant with God. And I said, then when's the last time you made a sacrifice? Well, the phone went dead. I I thought it was disconnected. I said, are you there? 
He didn't answer. I said, are you there? What, what answer do you have? Now, he kept the law of Moses better than anybody I could imagine ever being able to. I mean, nobody's perfect. But, boy, he was, <laughs> he was doing a pretty good job. But what about the other side? What are the Jews supposed to do on the sacrifice part? When was that done away? We know it was done away in Jesus. But if they don't accept Jesus, if they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, then what about the yearly sacrifice? Of course, their excuse is you can't make the sacrifice anywhere except on the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is where the, the, the Muslims have got all their, their mosques and stuff like that, so there's no place for us to make sacrifice. Okay, well, the Bible doesn't say make sacrifices once a year unless the Muslims take over. It says there's a day of atonement one day a year. It gives the day and the time. What are they supposed to do? Folks, it's a sign that they've got a changed priesthood for those that will accept it. And that's what this is telling them. But this man, verse 24, because he continueth forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able to save them bring them to absolute completion throughout all time that come to God by him. That's the only way you can come to him. Come to God is by Jesus, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now, what's the reason that Jesus is our high priest forever? Because he makes intercession for those that come. Now, intercession cannot be prayer in this setting. Because intercession means to stand in between two people that are separated. Now, it can, be, it can be in a spiritual context or it can be in a natural context. If, if you introduce some two people that you know that don't know each other, you have just interceded between those two people. You joined those two together in a relationship. They didn't, know who each, they didn't know the other party, but you knew both, and so you reached out and introduced them. You put your hand on both through an introduction, and you brought them into a relationship. You just interceded for them. Your act of introduction was an intercessory, intercessory act. Well, you didn't pray for them. You had a position between two parties and joined them. But now that they're joined, they don't need you anymore. They can cut you out completely. They can go directly one to another. So how is it that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for them who come to God by him? It's his position that enables us to maintain our relationship with God the Father. If Jesus is not a high priest forever, your salvation is short-lived. Because your salvation depends on being in Christ. So if Jesus stops being at the right hand of God the Father, if he stops being the high priest that's seated at God's right hand, you're no longer in Christ, and therefore you're no longer joined with God. So everything we have is through Jesus. Now why is that? Because Jesus is both king and priest. Now because you're in Christ... That's why Revelation says, Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. That's why it says twice that God has made us kings and priests unto God by him. Why? Because we're in Christ and he's both king and priest. That means we don't need to go through anybody else to offer sacrifices. We don't need to go through anybody else to get forgiveness for our sins. We don't need to go through anybody else because we're in Christ and the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin. Now, what do we do if we do sin? Well, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9 that we ask forgiveness. Why? Because we're in Christ and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We still have to ask for it, but it's because we're in Christ. We don't have to go through anybody else. 
just the one we're joined to. That's the absolute completion that he's talking about throughout all time. It's not different in our day than it was when Jesus was still here on the earth and had just been raised from the dead. It's the same throughout all time. You'll be in Christ forever. Not until the end of the world, but forever. Verse 26, for such a high priest became us or was fitting for us, who is, notice the four things that it says, four or five things. Number one, he was holy. Number two, he was harmless. That means he didn't answer back when he was reviled. Number three, he was undefiled. That means unstained from the world. He was in the world. He was among sinners, but he was unstained by the sin. He became as a man, but he didn't take on the sin nature of man. He was separate from sinners, number four. And finally, he was made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests, the Levitical high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for their own sins and then once and then for the people's. Every high priest, every Levitical high priest had to do that. They had to wash themselves. They had to offer sacrifice for their own sins before they could ever step in and be the go-between between the people and God. Not Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to do any of that. Why? Because he did that once when he offered up himself. When he was, when he shed his blood on the cross, that was an offering for sin forever. Then when he became the first begotten from the dead, the firstborn, literally born again from spiritual death, it's his eternal life that qualified him as the high priest forever. For the law maketh men high priests which have neither, which have infirmity. But the word of the oath which was since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated. This word consecrated literally means completed forevermore. Now, I want you to notice the phrase in here in verse 28. But the word of the oath which was since the law. In other words, uh, the, the complete Jewish Bible says it this way. But the word of prophecy, talking about Psalm 110, that God said through David, David's the one that was inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us about the prophecy. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He said the prophecy about the Messiah came after the Torah when the Levitical priesthood was established. If the Levitical priesthood, back to verse 11 where Paul's original statement was concerned, if the Levitical priesthood made us complete, if it brought us into union and relationship with God, if that was all that needed to be done, then why was there a need for another priest after the order of Melchizedek? Why wouldn't the Messiah be after the order of Aaron, the, Levi the Levites? Why wouldn't it just continue on because it got the job done? Because it didn't get the job done. So here it says, the point that he's making is, you know the prophecy about the Messiah that you've all held fast to. You, everybody claims to be looking for it. Everybody claims that this is the way that it's going to be. The word of the oath was since or after the Torah was given to Moses. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. That's where the Levitical priesthood was established. That's where the commandments were given. That's where the, the, uh, the ritual sacrifices were established and, and outlined and so forth. He said the prophecy, the oath that God swore unto Jesus, the Messiah, to come, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and that will never change. This is my plan. That transfers from the law of Moses, the priesthood of the Levites, unto your hands once and for all, and will never be any different. Makes the son who is completed. How was he completed? He was completed through his resurrection. Who is completed forevermore. Now, in the 8th and the ninth chapters, Paul's going to get into some real difficult stuff for them. Now, what has he just told them? 
he just told them, the Jews, the, 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 the Jews in Jerusalem, you remember the, the history of this book, the best evidence that we have is that it was attached to, connected to the Galatian letter. And then it was separated. Paul must have known it would be separated and sent, copied something, get back to Jerusalem. He's talking to the high priests. He's telling them, you're done. And there is no way for you to argue way out of this. Now, the high priests, some have infiltrated the church. Some may not be saved, but still operating as do what we tell you to do. I mean, that'd be kind of a hard position. You, maybe some of these guys have been waiting for 20 years to be the high priest, and now Paul comes along and says, there is no need for high priest anymore. Well, what's my life for then? You know? I mean, that'd be a pretty tough situation from a natural standpoint for some folks. And that may have something to do with why they're kicking against it. That may have something to do with why they're resisting the t- truth that Paul is, is, uh, is teaching and maybe why they're even sending people out to disrupt the churches and tear up things after Paul goes, after he leaves from city to city. It would make sense. I, I don't know for sure that that's the case. We do know that there were Jews that came from Jerusalem. We have to assume that that means from the high priests. But it says Jews came from Jerusalem and they tried to tear up, tear up churches that Paul established. He's trying to overcome that once and for all by proving to them from their own scriptures. The high priests know this stuff. They're supposed to be teaching and training and educating and reminding the people of these things to come. They're the ones that are supposed to be telling the people, there's the Messiah to come and someday we're going to have a high priest forever. It won't be like it is here where you have to bring sacrifices, but the Messiah will come and make a one-time sacrifice and oh, won't that be a wonderful thing where we don't have to do this year after year after year. Paul's saying that year's now. That time is now, and he's going to tie them up. He's going to wrap them up so tight. I would really hate to be the high priest in Jerusalem with this letter being read, this letter being publicized, made public in Jerusalem, and everybody looks at the high priest and says, well, what are you going to say to that? Because they have nothing to say to it. Paul's got the same training they do, and that's why he goes into such detail. Folks, I know some of it is difficult with the language. I know some of it is difficult with culture because we as Gentiles really don't know too much about how things work with the Jews. But this is nailing their hides to the wall. And he's just getting started. He hasn't even gotten into the tough things yet. Chapter 9, chapter 9 is tough. It's tough for us to understand, but it's brutal for them. Jesus is your high priest forever. Because he's king and priest, and because you're in him, you're the same. He's made us kings and priests unto him. Oh, thank God he is. Thank God what he's made us to be. Amen? Think about if you lived under the old covenant. There's no way to get to God. You bring animal sacrifices. You bring different gifts and things like that. But no way you could get to God. How is it that we can have access to God? Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, it says, for the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. You know, uh, you remember the story of the rich young ruler? Mark chapter 10. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, you know what the law says. Keep the commandments. And the, the rich young ruler, I mean, he must, he must kind of poke his chest out and say, well, all the, uh, Jesus identifies a few, you know, um, don't kill, don't steal, so forth. And he sticks his chest out and says, well, all these things have I kept from my youth up. Well, Jesus gives him one last one. He said, well, the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's the, guy, that's the one the guy has problem with. 
Because the way that you love your neighbor as yourself is you're willing to give up what you have to help them and not just keep it for yourself. And that's what he wouldn't do. Now, the interesting thing about that is that's an Old Testament commandment. That's Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. For you to love your neighbor as yourself. How in the world could you keep that if you're not saved? It's impossible. If you don't have the life of God on the inside of you, it's impossible. God knew when he gave the law that it was, there was no chance for somebody to be able to keep the commandments because there's no life to the law. What a frustrating thing that is. And, and folks, religion makes people technical but without life. Just like the priests. They're going through the motions, they're doing the rituals, they're offering the sacrifices, they're doing all the, the, the nuts and bolts of stuff, just like religion will have you do. You can't do this, you can't do that, got to do that, you better not do that. Over and over and over again, but it becomes technical and there's no life to it. That's what changes about the better covenant established upon better promises. You've got the life of God on the inside now. Now it's not a matter of keeping the law because you have to. Don't you want to? Don't you want to do the right thing? Well, of course we do. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. That's the blessing of the new covenant. That's what makes it the better covenant established upon better promises. And Paul's going to tie him up with it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to read and study your word and to accept it to be true. Thank you, Father, that Jesus is our surety. He's the pledge that we have from you of a better covenant. We thank you, Father, that we are in him. He is our king and he is our priest, and that makes us kings and priests unto you. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to talk to you face to face, to speak to you directly, to hear from heaven in our hearts, to know that the word of God is the power to rule and reign in this life, to know that the name of Jesus gives us authority over all the power of the enemy, so that we can, in the name of Jesus, as his agents here on the earth, rule in the midst of the enemies of God. What a privilege, Father, for us to live above this life, live above the elements of this world, and be examples of your love, your goodness, and the very Spirit of God. Thank you, Father. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.